Hello and welcome to another episode of the Agronovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. This is your host, Frank Aragona. Thanks for joining us. In this interview, we are joined by Doug Burdett, who is of growfish.com. Doug is an expert in fish farming and aquaponics technology, and he has worked in this area for over 40 years. Doug Burdett, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Doug, can you start by talking about the history of aquaculture and your involvement in the development of intensive aquaculture systems? Um, well, aquaculture actually uh, has been around a long time. It started 3,000 years ago in China and Asia, where, uh, of course, they were primarily rice farmers, which, uh, if you know about rice, they actually grow it in a shallow pond. Uh, the rice grows during the growing season out of water, but then at some point they have to flood the, the pond. And what they would do is, during the uh, seasons, uh, the time of the year when they weren't growing rice, uh, they would load the ponds up with fish, usually tilapia or, or koi sometimes, or carp. Um, and uh, that's the way it, it uh, aquaculture started. Now, this practice of pond culture uh, continues even today, and uh, primarily uh, modern aquaculture uh, became, uh, uh, people became aware of it back in the 60s, late 50s maybe, when the... Uh, Mississippi farmers who had their cotton fields, they were looking for another crop. And somebody got the idea to dig ponds in the Delta area and grow catfish for market. Um, at the time, uh, catfish was a delicacy in the South, and nobody in the North or the West or Northeast anywhere would really touch it. Uh, they knew about it, but it was not a favorable fish. But through great marketing, and uh, uh, taste, taste uh, little contests and all cooking contests, uh, the uh, Mississippi catfish became the number one aquaculture crop worldwide. Well, I this was, as I said, in the 50s and 60s. Well, I was getting out of college in the late 60s. I had background in engineering, marine biology, and the question was, what do you do with it? And I had been introduced to um, uh, the catfish uh, industry and was fascinated by it. So I have a farm here in Maryland, and we put in 10 water acres of ponds, and I started growing catfish. Now, the problem is Maryland is, uh, is not as warm as the south. It's not real bitter cold like the north, but we had a very short growing season. So what I decided to try to do was grow these fish in large tanks indoors. And at the same time, in the early 70s, there were some other people, uh, about a handful of people running around, um, trying to do the same thing. And so here we are 40 years later. Um, most of the original group that I hung out with were much older than me. They have either passed on or retired. And I guess I'm the last of the one of the last of the originals, but um, in the last 40 years, we've made a lot of progress to now. Uh, we can actually grow more fish in a 3,000-gallon tank than you can in one-acre pond. Yes, and you have been a pioneer in a system that's called the S92. Can you talk about the S92 system? Uh, tell us what it is and tell us its key features. 
Well, the S92, uh, the S, by the way, stands for sequential. And what happened over the years from the early 70s, 70, 71 in that area, up until the 92 was actually the year, it's the nomenclatures that I use, that we introduced this system. So it took us um, almost 20 years uh, to develop this. Now, I, as an aquaculture engineer, work differently than most. Uh, most of them out there, if you want to do a project, they come in and they custom design it. And very seldom are any two systems the same. Uh, through my research and development, and by the way, I ran one of the four most privately owned research and development labs, if you may, or farms uh, from the early 70s, and I shut it down in 2002. But in my research, the S92, prior to that, we had developed uh, a tank that had very specific um, uh, dimensions to it and a configuration. And in addition to it, uh, my father had invented an oxygen injector. This is a device that pushes oxygen into water to pump it up, rather than, as you know, in an aquarium where they bubble it in to give the fish oxygen. Um, we developed and I say we because I had my sons were here and I had a staff, we developed a tank, specific tank, that worked with this specific injector. Now, the S92, <clears throat> excuse me, was the one of the first commercial uh, systems that actually incorporated as a part of its operation aquaponics. But... Um, uh, to this day, any system that I build is still centers around that tank and uh, the uh, the plumbing and the hookup to that. Now, the oxygen injector, do you need oxygen in tanks to get the oxygen into the water? How exactly does that work? Um, anybody that's familiar with an aquarium, of course, they have a little air pump on it, and they bubble the water in. Um this is fine in an aquarium where you only have a few fish. Uh, you have to remember in aquaculture, we might be growing up to one pound per gallon of water. And if you can picture this, uh, probably not, but the fact is you may have 3,000 gallons of water and 3,000 pounds of fish. And this is literally one fish rubbing against the other one all the time, I suppose, but they seem to be happy. Now, as a result of this high density, which we call biomass, we have to get as much oxygen into that water as we can in a very efficient manner. Um, <clears throat> uh, the fish, when they're laying, uh, when they're just laying around doing nothing, they use a certain amount of oxygen. But when they feed or there's any activity, just like uh, humans, uh, then your respiration picks up. So the problem was, how do we get? Uh, an adequate amount of oxygen into the water. And to do this, you have to under understand how that works. Um, any, say, a cubic foot of water um, can only hold so much oxygen. There's only so much room between all the uh, water molecules, which is where the dissolved oxygen lies. But we have to have a lot. We can't depend on bubbles or anything like that. So... As I said, my father invented a device uh, based on an old principle that if you introduce oxygen, and keep in mind, I'm talking about pure oxygen now, not ambient air. 
but if you introduce oxygen into water under pressure, anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds, the oxygen will dissolve into the water. It literally pushes it into the water. And fish require what we call something like anywhere from 4 to 6 parts of oxygen per million parts of water. Saturated oxygen, I think, it's, I, I understand it's around 12. I've heard people say they can push 20 into it. I'm not sure. But by using our injector, which has the ability to put 12 parts per million in constantly, then we can assure that the fish throughout the tank will have an adequate uh, supply of oxygen. Now, I might add, my oxygen injectors are also a steering mechanism. Uh, they're designed, as I mentioned earlier, around my systems. And this injector is set up in such a way that as the water is discharged from its nozzle, uh, it comes out at a certain velocity and is aimed in a certain direction in the tank. And uh, it's something that would be hard to explain here, but it sets up an oscillation in the tank where the water crisscrosses constantly. And we depend on that to do several things. One, of course, is bring in new water uh, from the filters that's already been circulated, uh, heavily oxygen-laden, but at the same time, as this water pushes through the tanks, it's also sweeping the tank to get rid of the fish waste. So it does two things at one time. You also describe on your website the benefits of polyculture in aquaculture systems. I know that you, you talked about catfish and you talked about koi and other fish. The range of species of fish is obviously very diverse, and this is a topic we've talked about uh, on this podcast before in terms of plants. There's a lot of agricultural biodiversity out there. Now, I'd imagine, uh, as I just said, it's the same in in fish and aquaculture systems. Could you talk about the benefits of polycultures in an aquaculture system? Well, polyculture, it, it depends on how you define it. To me... It means growing multiple species of fish at the same time. Something we learned over the years is you can't mix the species within the tank, uh, an individual tank. However, you could have four tanks side to side, each one growing a different species of fish. I'll give you a good example, which is sort of humorous, I guess, depending on your sick mind. Uh, we realized that... Um, years ago, I guess it was back in the early 90s or late 80s, that the fish stayed in our tanks in a water column uh, at the upper end, which meant the bottom of the tank wasn't being utilized a lot. And there, believe it or not, is a pretty good market for eels. Um, so we got the bright idea, why don't we put some eels in these tanks and they can stay on, because they are a bottom dweller, and uh, they can stay down there and eat off of the... Uh, waste plus any leftover feed, and we'd have a double crop. Well, several days later, we noticed that a lot of the fish were starting to die. And, uh, of course, we immediately suspected it had something to do with the eels, but we didn't know why. So what happened was we um, started checking the fish, and lo and behold, come to find out in the nighttime, the eels were attacking the fish and actually eating their gills out. So that's a reason why you can't grow two species at once. Uh, not only that, some fish like a tilapia 
Uh, he has his temperament. If he tried growing striped bass in there, he's a much more aggressive fish, so he would dominate the tank. Um, when you talk about different species, there I have no idea how many different species of fish there are in the world, thousands and thousands, but they are not all uh, good candidates for aquaculture or fish farming. And it's important to understand that all the fish grown today in aquaculture, whether they are tilapia, catfish, striped bass, whatever, they all have direct roots back to the wild catch. We have no domesticated animals at this time. Uh, there has been some research to uh, speed it up where they uh, have tried with salmon. They genetically changed them. There's been a lot of howling about that, but, um, you know, that's a whole other story. But the best way I explain this when I talk to people, um, compare fish to, uh, to birds. And if I say poultry, the first thing comes to anyone's mind is chicken. And if you keep pushing them, they'll say turkey or, and then some ducks or something else. There's a reason why the chicken is number one. He just happens to be a bird, although we do have them domesticated now after thousands of years. But he happens to be the one bird that you can grow the most efficiently and get the most meat out of it. And that's what, and it can go onto the market at a, a price that everyone can afford. And you get into turkeys, the price is higher. They're a little more complicated and ducks, Lord knows what. Well, we have the same thing with fish. Of all the thousands and thousands of fish, um, only a handful of species have been identified as good candidates to produce a commodity. One is the tilapia, which has become very big. Uh, striped bass is another one. Trout. Uh, even now, today, we have learned in recent years also how to grow shrimp very efficiently. But this, this completely takes out of the picture uh, a lot of fish like largemouth bass, maybe, or, or swordfish, or a shark, or something like that. They are not good candidates in a tank. Now, the, the fish that are good candidates are mostly freshwater fish, if I'm not mistaken. This is true. Most all Now, there are a lot of uh, uh, species, mostly um, I, I recently uh, picked up a client in Saudi Arabia where they're going to use one of my systems to grow saltwater fish. Saltwater, you have to remember, um, freshwater is everywhere. Even on the seacoast, there's freshwater. If you want to grow fish inland, um, say in Iowa, well, you're not going to find natural salt water. So this creates another issue for you right there. You have to make your own. Now, that's not uh, unheard of. It's done all the time. But it's, it's just another nuisance for you. And even if you were on the coast, uh, it is not advisable necessarily to bring in raw salt water out of the ocean or, or out of a bay. You never know when it's polluted. It's not pure. So what's happened is, um, and also when we get into other things, we'll talk about here later, aquaponics. Uh, fresh water is your most ideal um, uh, liquid to use, if you may, that's, if that's the word, uh, over salt water. It's the preferred. And um, we've even gotten shrimp now. This has been the great breakthrough in shrimp. Uh, they've been growing shrimp forever in Asia in ponds, once again, the more crude method. But they bring in raw seawater. In recent years now, we have learned that we can take a saltwater shrimp, 
hatch. We keep the uh, brood stock in salt water. We let them breed. We hatch the uh, young out. They're called uh, larvae. Um, larvae. But we've learned now that we can convert them to fresh water. So that's been a big advantage. Then there are some species that go both ways. A striped bass, uh, like we have here on the East Coast at Chesapeake Bay, he can be either freshwater or saltwater. And uh, when we're talking about species, a, a striped bass that's grown in aquaculture um, is actually not a pure striped bass as a rule. He's a cross between a, a striped bass and uh, what's called a whitefish, which is a um, freshwater fish found mostly in Mississippi. They look a lot alike, but we, we cross them up, so they're called hybrids. So could you give us a general idea of how many species uh, we have to work with here, just a general rule of thumb in terms of the, the diversity of species that are domesticated? Well, not domesticated, but that, that integrate well with these aquaculture systems? All right. Well, we can start right at the top, of uh, which is uh, more of a saltwater species. One of the, the big fish is the salmon. Uh, they're not grown necessarily in tanks although some people have been experimenting. Salmon is done with a thing called mariculture, where they put big net, net pans out in uh, the ocean or bays. That's uh, big in Sweden. They call them uh, fjords, I guess. Um, so salmon is one. Of course, trout have been around a long time. They're grown primarily in raceways, not so much in a recirculating system, although it can be done. Then you have the catfish, which are primarily, uh, at this point, still grown in the ponds in Mississippi. Although uh, conditions are changing now, uh, particularly the prices coming up on them, um, and it could very well be in the near future you'll see catfish grown in indoor ponds. Then we go down to the number one uh, crop as far as tanks is the tilapia. Um, and then after that, there's other species that they grow um, uh, for instance, yellow perch, uh, and, and these are all food species. There are people who are experimenting with things like haddock. They experiment with flounder, but they have not yet come onto the market. And there are also people who are uh, doing experiments, some more serious, actually, than others with sturgeon to try to get the caviar. Um, there's a new fish. Uh, it's, it's, it would be new to the U.S. Uh, they've been doing it. I have a client in uh, Adelaide, Australia, who grows a fish called a, a barramundi. And you can remember you heard it here. The barramundi, I think, will eventually uh, make its way uh, to America. We do have some here now. And it will become as popular as the tilapia. It's a very tasty freshwater perch. But all in all, I mean... Anywhere you go in the world, if you look around, you'll see somebody experimenting with uh, different kinds of fish. They just haven't uh, gotten it down to where it can be commercialized and profitable yet. So it seems like we're still in the early stages of a lot of this. Uh, maybe there's a lot of other species that people are experimenting with or have not even, even yet started experimenting with that someday will be brought into these uh, aquaculture systems. Um, I mentioned earlier that I shut my research lab down in the you know, 2000. There were several reasons for that. Uh, one of them was I was getting old. 
But the most important reason why I did it, um, I felt at my point in that I had already I had already learned pretty much everything that I needed to know at this time as far as equipment was concerned. Now that's not to discourage other entrepreneurs and inventors. We still have plenty of of, of things we can do to improve the biofiltration, improve efficiency. Now, having said all that, the next research, which is not something that I do, will have to need better feed. Uh, our feed is commercially done from grain. Um, that's something you might want to ask me about in a little bit. And I'm very opinionated on it. And we need better um, species, more efficient species of fish, although a tilapia is pretty efficient. The problem with a tilapia is when you are uh, uh, butchering out, if you may, or uh, processing, you only get one-third of that whole fish as uh, consumable meat, whereas the catfish you get 50%, which is, which is good. So what we're going to need is we're going to need more research, as you say, on fish, whether they should be genetically altered or not is controversy I don't get into, um, or we're going to have to do something here because if we don't, the uh, right now we have a, you can go to a good seafood restaurant and find a whole host of different kinds of fish. Maya, uh, uh, Maya, swordfish, shark, you, I mean, you name it. Obviously, we can't keep getting these from the ocean. And what's going to happen here very shortly, if it hasn't already happened, you're going to find the uh, variety of seafood that you can buy anywhere limited to five species. So it would be tilapia, striped bass, shrimp, things that can be grown in aquaculture. So if we're going to increase this, um, they'll have to do something. But then again, um, philosophical, maybe it'll be like poultry. You'll have chicken, turkey, and ducks, and that's it. Maybe somebody will grow a pheasant. But uh, that's, that could be where seafood is going. You just mentioned that you have strong feelings about the feed sources. Much of it's from grain. Could you talk about that? Well, my problem is this, and I have not really worked as much as I uh, want to on it. And it's something that I'm going to have to sit down and start thinking about, slow down a little bit on the engineering side. Uh, depending on the fish you're growing, let's take a trout or a salmon or a striped bass. These fish are carnivores. Now, they have certain tolerance for grains or cereal-type foods. The food that we use today has a base, generally, the feed in all cases, of it'll either be corn or suey bean. Now, that's not the problem for me. Now, tilapia... He is primarily, you can feed him suey beans, all, a suey bean meal all day long with trace minerals, and he's fine because he's a vegetarian. But when you get into the carnivores now, we have to load that feed up to get the right balance and nutritional balance for that fish. We have to load it up with fish meal. This is where I have a problem. I, I'm as guilty of it as the next guy. I can say, hey, I'm growing striped bass, and every time you buy a fish from me, you save the wild fish. Not necessarily true. And probably somebody in aquaculture will hear me say this and call me up and yell at me. But here's the problem. If you, um, I, I'm, uh, I live right next to the Chesapeake Bay, so I'm very familiar with the environment and the ecosystem. 
uh, down off of Virginia, we have a huge fish meal plant who is uh, harvesting alewives, uh, mayhem, the heron, heron type fish, and in vast numbers to turn them into fish meal. Which, by the way, fish meal is used for human consumption and as well as animal feed and this sort of thing. But it's pretty hard to make a case for the long future of aquaculture to say that we still depend on the wild catch, the wild variety, to supply us with the feed that we can feed uh, our aquacultured fish. So that's where my problem comes. Now, I think what's going to happen in the next generation, and I have experimented with this in the past, and I've never really documented a lot, but as I said, someday I'll sit down and think about it. It would be possible to grow a sub, uh, a, a, a smaller species of fish, say, for instance, a minnow. And this is done all the time in the aquarium business. If anybody has a, a carnivore in their big aquarium, like a piranha or something, you go to the store and you buy what they call feeder goldfish. These are little goldfish you throw in the tank and then the big fish eats it. We're going to have to do something like that in aquaculture. We're going to have to become like the dairy farmer. The dairy farmer or the cattle farmer, he raises his cattle, but on a very small part of his farm, and the rest of his farm he uses to produce the corn, the hay, and the grain that he uses to feed his cattle. So he's producing his feed and his end product in one spot. I think for fish like striped bass, um, maybe trout, I'm not sure, but salmon, these kind of fish that are carnivores, we would be able to have a farm where they would produce their own feed because the minnows will thrive very well on a suey bean, in other words, a, a grain or vegetable uh, or cereal-based feed, and they will convert it to the fish meal ingredients, and you will feed them then to the aquacultured fish, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I do, and I'm just wondering if it doesn't bring up concerns in terms of, uh, we all know that uh, feedlots, feedlot dairies and the like, are extremely inefficient when we look at their the amount of energy that actually goes into them, and I'm wondering if we're going to move in that same direction with with aquaculture, although people who focus on growing grass and grazing their cattle... Uh, that's a much more sustainable solution to it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm, so I witnessed it firsthand, and I have a lot of thoughts on it. Number one, you can't compare either the production of poultry or aquaculture to the production of cattle. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, the fish, uh, chickens, can actually are a one-point five, I think, uh, they'll tell you 1.1 or 2, but it's what we call it feed conversion ratio. So in other words, with a chicken, um, I understand, it's possible to for every 1.23 or 4 or 5 pounds uh, that you of feed you give him, he will gain 1 pound of weight. In fish, uh, we can do the same thing. Although, when the, at the end of the day, at the end of the year, you'll find that uh, I always tell people the conversion rate on fish is two to one. For every two pounds of fish of feed you put in that tank, you will get one pound of fish. 
Now, I know you can do it at 1.1, 1.2, but you have waste, you have fish that die, you know, and this sort of thing, and they raise the uh, system average up at the end of the year. Now, we take a look at cattle, you're talking 40 to 1 at best. So there's your difference. Now, why is this? Well, in chickens, they're kept in a close house um, where they don't lose all their energy to uh, generating heat to stay warm. Fish, they don't have to stay warm, so they can convert every bit of energy they got to growing. Cattle, on the other hand, are just a little more inefficient uh, in their digestion and, and everything. And, of course, uh, they, like any other uh, warm-blooded animal, they, gen- they use a lot of their uh, energy just to generate heat. And the bigger he gets, the more he uses. So that's the other thing. The other thing you have to remember, your conversion rates change. Uh, the bigger the animal gets, um, the, the lower the conversion rate, or, or the wider the gap, I should say. Because, uh, just like you and I, we're adults, we still have to eat every day, even though we aren't growing, except maybe at the waistline, but we try to keep that in check. But we have to eat every day just to maintain the body mass that we have already achieved in our life. A fish, we're only growing that sucker to one to two pounds. And so he's using a lot less uh, to maintain his body mass than a, than a, uh, a steer that we're trying to raise to a thousand pounds. So if you if you follow along there. Yeah, I follow your line of logic, and it makes a lot more sense when you explain it that way to produce fish as opposed to cattle in a feedlot environment. Although I I would just remind listeners that if cattle are grass-fed, then they're converting something that, you know, we can't directly consume into something that we can. This is important. I have uh, people come to me a lot, uh, not so much anymore, but they used to to, um, that were had the vegetarian mindset, okay? I really don't care what your preference is. You know, myself, I cannot stand broccoli, so don't try to do this. But if veg- uh, you prefer to be a vegetarian, that's fine. But I traveled the world, and I have uh, tried to help uh, people through working with the United Nations for four years um, in uh, Africa, you know, South Pacific, and these places. There's one thing that people have to understand, and you just hit the nail on the head. We can only grow so many vegetables. And when any in my travels to Africa with the UN uh, Food and Agricultural Organization, any time that I saw mass starvation, it was a result of a failed crop from people who primarily were vegetarians, because that's all they had. I mean, it's not, it wasn't they wanted to be. They just didn't have a goat or a cow to slaughter. Now, having said that and started a controversy there, on the other hand, it's important to understand that having a farm background, I know as well as anybody. Uh, uh, matter of fact, I continue to live on an operating farm. Um, not all of the open land we have is suitable for growing crops that we can consume. Um, so, as you say, you get out on the prairie, you're talking about switchgrass or something that the cattle can can convert to a food form that we can eat, but we can't eat that grass. So it's very important to understand that, that we, we're in a balance here, you know. So, yeah, to say that a cow is uh, inefficient um, 
it, it's inefficient when you look at him as a machine or a mechanism, but he's very efficient when it comes to feeding their population too. So. Yeah, and it seems to me that we want to target species and systems like your aquaculture systems and uh, poultry systems that get in, in that type of environment more return from the feed that you get them. And then, you know, when we have things like cattle, it makes a lot more sense to graze them. That is the end of part one with our interview of our interview with Doug Burdett. We will have part two next week, so stay tuned for that. And I should have a little bit of time at the end of that to give people some updates on some things that I want to include, uh, read some listener emails and that sort of thing. So please stay tuned. Until then, this is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos. Saludos.